Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. Lucky day, folks, because roughly every three months, I get to step back for a day, and your guest host for Spirit in Action is the wonderful Peterson Toscano of Citizens Climate Radio. Most of the time, I do a plain conversational interview, but Peterson makes his shows a treat for the ears, as well as for the mind, by mixing an evocative soundscape onto his interviews and grabbing contributions from all sorts of approaches to the climate topic, scientific, artistic, musical, psychological, and other ways. His creativity and artistry are undeniable, and it's all in the service of healing our climate change-ravaged world. I'll let Peterson tell you about the various guests and segments he's sharing today, but I wanted to mention something about a major piece of what he'll be doing, and that has to do with motivation. You see, my goal in bringing you all of the Spirit in Action guests I've brought you over the past 16 and a half years is not to say, wow, aren't they great? though it's often my feeling about them. It's about hoping to inspire and equip you to be a world healer. It's about changing all of us to be the best we can be in passing on blessings to the entire world. Much of our culture encourages hero worship and ego, and I hope that what you get from Spirit in Action is the clarity that we are all the heroes we need, and we don't need to puff up egos. And I think you'll get a lot of that from today's Spirit in Action guest host, Peterson Toscano of Citizens Climate Radio. Over to you, Peterson. Thank you, Mark, and thank you for joining me here on Spirit in Action. Today, we see how an artist uses an antique photographic process to immerse her audience into data behind drowned forests. And you'll hear an original play written by Camille Hake. Plus, Krista Heiser dives us all into the world of Stations Eleven. It's the novel by Emily St. John Mandel, which is now an HBO series. But first, we speak to a writer and a lover of literature who found her way dab smack into the middle of the work she loves. She's a communications director for a major climate organization. Deciding what one wants to do and be in life has often been hard for young people in high school and college. Now, with a global pandemic and a time of climate change, uh, it's more difficult than ever to answer the question, what do you want to be when you grow up? Many graduation speeches exhort us to pursue our passions, and many a parent worry <laughs> that such a pursuit will lead their child into a jobless future. Flannery Winchester, though, was not put off by the concerns of others. I felt pretty confident that I could do something in editing or writing or something in this communicating world. And so I majored in English. And then when I graduated, I went right into a job as basically a staff writer and kind of social media person for a local magazine in Atlanta, Georgia. In many ways, the job was a great fit, and it gave Flannery a chance to grow as a writer and communicator. It was a small team, and I got a lot of experience in different areas of 
communications and also working really closely with the publisher of the magazine to understand what her goals were and how to grow and how to kind of translate her vision into the types of articles and Facebook posts and things that that she wanted to see. So that was really great experience. And I actually ended up being the editor of that magazine for a while, which sounds a lot fancier than it is. I can't emphasize enough what a small <laughs> team it was. <laughs> so as I as I rose up, it's not like I climbed up a big long ladder. It was just a very small team and they eventually gave me more responsibility. And so I, I ran the editorial side of the magazine. Although Flannery experienced success on the job, something was missing for her. I was there for two and a half years, and I started to think to myself, I'm good at these skills, right? I have these skills of writing and editing. It wasn't lighting me up to do them about just any old topic. This was a women's sort of health and fitness magazine, and I realized I don't really care about writing about mascara (laughs) or the latest, you know, fitness trend. Like all of that is fine, but it wasn't my passion. And so I started to ask myself, how can I use these skills that I have to do something that I care really deeply about? Her concern for environmental issues and for climate change in particular motivated her to pursue another position. So I started applying for a bunch of jobs in the environmental and climate space got absolutely radio silence from every application that I sent out. And I was trying to figure out why why was I not getting any response? I decided that the answer probably was that I had nothing on my resume related to the climate or environment space. So people were looking at probably looking at my applications and going, why is this person trying to get this job or trying to work in this organization? They're not related to this. They haven't shown any interest in this before. What Flannery did as a result of the lack of response she received, well, it serves as a masterclass on relentlessly pursuing a passion. First step is that she decided to try another tactic, get to know the space she hopes to inhabit. So I decided, instead of spinning my wheels and still trying to get a job in that space, that I would just go volunteer. I would just start doing the work I wanted to do, even if nobody would pay me for it yet, (laughs) while I still did the paying job that I had. I did that and went to a bunch of different climate and environment stuff all around the city of Atlanta. I actually participated in planning the People's Climate March of 2015 in Atlanta, which we felt like was a great success. We had like 550 people there. This was right before the conference of parties in Paris. So right before the COP where they formed the Paris Agreement. So that was an exciting time to get connected with the sort of the movement and the advocacy world and to help plan that event. In sampling different environmental and climate groups, though, Flannery realized not every one of them was a good fit for her. And one that I remember in particular was like a support circle kind of thing where people were just sort of meeting and chatting and hanging out as advocates who care about this kind of stuff. And it was like a potluck thing. So I brought a dish and was meeting all these people for the first time. And the thing that struck me about that whole evening was that everybody was so pessimistic. And this was only this was only like 2015. But everybody was so, so pessimistic about the possibility that we would be able to actually fix climate change or that we would be able to heal any of the harm that we've done to the earth. 
I could not get out of there fast enough. I was just like, this is not the attitude <laughs> that I want to bring to this work or the, the kind of attitude that I want to be around if I'm going to do this for the long haul. Like I need something that is more optimistic and more sure that we can make positive change. She didn't let that one group discourage her. Then, in fall of 2015, she went to an event that would end up defining her career path. A Facebook friend posted about an event that was a letter-writing party hosted by Citizens Climate Lobby of Atlanta. This is another thing I can check out and try. Within minutes of walking in the door of that event, I had met the group leader of the Atlanta chapter and some other DCLers that were in the chapter. And then they had put a pen in my hand and sat me down and said, we're going to write to our senators about the fact that we want them to, to take climate change really seriously and we want them to enact policy to address it. By the end of the night, I had written out and addressed and stamped my letters to my members of Congress. And I felt so snazzy because <laughs> I had never done anything like that before. It was so concrete that it was really satisfying to have done that. It was so distinct from that space where I had been where everybody was pessimistic and, and just didn't think we could fix anything. It was the polar opposite of that. Everybody in that room had this sense of if we make our voices heard, if we show up together, if we apply pressure together and we stay persistent, we can make our elected officials take this seriously and enact the kinds of solutions that we really need to see, and we can solve this problem. Turns out this local CCL chapter was connected to the national CCL headquarters in a way that was perfect for Flannery. Steve Valk, who was CCL's communications staffer at the time, he was in that chapter. I met not just advocates who wanted to do things with the same kind of attitude that I did, but I also met a staff member who needed some help. After he and I talked some about my professional interests and skills and what he did for CCL, we realized there was some overlap there. And so I started as a volunteer writing blog posts for the CCL blog and eventually coordinating other volunteer blog writers and having a, a monthly blog meeting to talk about our content and plan new content and all of that. In the end, I did end up doing what I set out to do, which was start doing climate work with the skills that I had, even if nobody was going to pay me yet. <laughs> and so I kept my day job while I got plugged in as a volunteer and then was very lucky that when CCL expanded the next time that there was additional grant money and donor funds that allowed us to expand our staff that Steve hired me on for the communications team. And so that was in 2017. And then I've been on staff ever since. Anyone concerned about the causes and impacts of climate change knows just how exhausting and overwhelming that work can be. But what if climate work becomes your full-time occupation? The biggest difference that I noticed when I started working full-time on climate was that my level of anxiety about climate change went way down, <laughs> which I didn't expect and which you might not think would happen. You might think if you're focused on it all the time, that might get you more anxious. 
But actually, I knew I had been worried about climate change for years, but I had never really felt the permission to worry about it as much as I really did. <laughs> and so it was something that was always kind of at the edges of my awareness, but I had to spend my days doing work on other stuff. I had to sort of pretend like other things were more important to do with my time than to solve this problem that felt like it was so, I mean, it is existential. When I finally got a chance to spend all my working hours on trying to address climate change, I felt so much more peaceful because I wasn't having to pretend that that anxiety wasn't there. I wasn't asking myself to look away from this big problem. But instead, I got to open up my laptop every morning at 9am and say, okay, I'm going to stare right at this thing that I'm so worried about. And I'm going to spend the next eight hours doing everything I can to help move things in the right direction. That was a huge shift. And I still feel that to this day, like I feel so much peace and freedom in the ability to be able to work directly on the thing that I see as one of the biggest problems that we face. Fortunately for Flannery, she was not working alone. So Steve is the OG CCL staffer. He has been here since the beginning and has seen so much growth and evolution in the organization. That's a real asset because we have grown a lot over the last four or five years. And there's a whole lot of people here now on staff who have learned that history. But Steve is one of the very few who lived that history and helped create that history. And he came to CCL after a 30-year career with the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. He was a great person to do this media work because his whole career was in the journalism space. CCL had grown a lot and has grown a lot since then. We went from the early days having a, a handful of chapters out in California to eventually getting to where we have supporters in every congressional district all across the country. We have something like 450 plus chapters here in the United States. We have almost 600 worldwide. That level of change and evolution in the organization, we were also experiencing changes and evolution in the communications department. When you work for an organization advocating for specific climate policies, how do you measure success? And how does an organization and its communications department adapt to increasing success? Part of what was happening those same early years of like 2017, 2018, 2019, is that we went from the policy that we were advocating for was not really on the table in Congress. It was still just an idea that we were asking members of Congress to, to introduce as legislation. And at the end of 2018, it actually was introduced as bipartisan legislation for the first time. The game we were kind of playing had gone to a higher field, or a, uh, I'm not sure how to say that really, but we were we were playing in the big leagues <laughs> at that point in a way that we never had before. Steve, because he'd been with the organization so long, was able to see that moment for what it was. Things are really different now, and the needs of this department in order to serve the mission, the needs of, of this department are different now. The pace of the department is different. The focus of the department had become slightly different. And this 
is when Flannery's story takes an unexpected turn. In fact, it was this marvelous twist in her story that compelled me to reach out to her. Flannery tells us what her boss, Steve Volk, did in response to these rapid changes. He went to Mark, our executive director, and said, Flannery is the right person to sort of lead us into this next phase of what the department needs to do and how the organization is growing. I want to work for her. Mark said okay, and they sat me down one evening at the November conference. We were all in, in the lobby of the Omni Shoreham Hotel, and they told me that they wanted to make this change, and that's what I thought about it. And I am driven by this mission in the same way that Steve is driven by this mission, and if this was what was right to, to meet the moment and to keep evolving and growing CCL, I was happy to do it. I asked her about the first thing she did after that meeting where she was offered the head of communications job. I think I texted a friend that I had actually just met for coffee in D.C. and just texted her like, well, you'll never believe what just happened. (laughs) Because that's not the kind of thing that happens. There's a lot of organizations where it's all about ego and you're jockeying for a better position or for more favor or for a fancier sounding title. And it's just not like that here at CCL. Like we are all committed to political will for a livable world. And so I think it really speaks to, to CCL's culture and to Steve himself. He was so focused on the mission that he stepped back and saw, like, I think this would be a better move for the organization and for the goals that we're trying to achieve. Yeah, it was just a, just an incredible moment. Flannery Winchester patiently pursued her passion. When she needed more experience, she found it as a volunteer. She remained steady and hardworking. And her passion kept her focus. Then doors opened for her. This is the sort of persistence and determination needed in this extraordinary time of climate change. When something's really important to me, I will figure out how to grow in the ways I need to grow in order to do the thing that's important. So like if you had told me five years ago, ten years ago, that I would be moderating a panel discussion with climate experts in front of a room of 2,000 people, I would have been scared and I probably would have laughed and said, no way, I I wouldn't do that. And so I think what I've learned is that I'm willing to do the hard stuff and push a little bit outside of my comfort zone and expand that comfort zone when there's a really good reason to. And the really good reason is I really want to solve climate change. You can experience Flannery's communications efforts by visiting the blog at citizensclimatelobby.org. You can even sign up for the monthly newsletter. Now it is time for the Art House and another installment of the Ultimate Cli-Fi Book Club. Every month, Krista Heiser looks at climate-themed literature. She thinks out loud about how climate fiction can help us engage with the real-world challenges we face today. An avid reader, whenever Krista suggests I read a book, I've never been disappointed. 
This month, in the Ultimate Cli-Fi Book Club, we discuss Station Eleven by Emily St. John Mandel, an award-winning novel just released as an HBO miniseries. I call it climate fiction because pandemic is an impact of increasing temperatures, mass migrations, and the incursion of human habitat into natural ecosystems. Back in April of 2020, Novelist Arundhati Roy nailed it when she said the pandemic is a portal. She called COVID-19 the wreckage of a train that has been careening down the track for years. Now that comment, along with my friend Kristen Flintz's amazing poem, an imagined letter from COVID-19 to humans, these define for me the literary starting point for sense-making about COVID-19. Station Eleven was published years before the first cases of coronavirus. It features a quick and brutal Georgia flu, which eliminates 99% of the human population in just weeks. The novel captures the onset of apocalypse perfectly. An early character, Jeevan, has just given CPR, unsuccessfully, to a famous actor who dies of a heart attack on stage while playing King Lear. The individual death presages the collective death of Western civilization, along with air conditioning, airplanes, television, punk rock, and oranges. Jeevan gets an early heads-up from a friend who works in a hospital. His friend is pretty much already dead as he passes on the warning. It's a few minutes before midnight as Jeevan fills shopping carts with supplies, water, toilet paper, aspirin, garbage bags, bleach, duct tape, and also coffee, crackers, salt, preserved cakes, and a bouquet of daffodils. He does this on autopilot, almost like he can't believe what he's doing, and I love this line in the book. Jeevan was crushed by a sudden certainty that this was it, that this illness was going to be the divide between a before and an after, a line drawn through his life. So just like that, we step through a portal into the after of the rest of the novel. There's no vaccine, no mandates, no conspiracy, but there are survivors. The young female protagonist, Kirsten, wanders around the Great Lakes region. She bands together with other actors and musicians as a traveling symphony. Climate change makes a cameo at the start of Chapter 7. Twenty years after the end of air travel, the caravans of the traveling symphony moved slowly under a white-hot sky. It was the end of July, and the 25-year-old thermometer affixed to the back of the lead caravan read 106 Fahrenheit, 41 Celsius. I guess that after everybody was dead, there was nobody to hold governments to the 1.5-degree promise of the Paris Agreement. In an interview with Elle magazine, the author said, When I was researching and writing Station Eleven, what I found myself thinking about all the time is how fragile civilization is and how we should never take it for granted. It just doesn't take much for things to fall apart. The main character, Kirsten, has this tattoo on her arm that says, Survival is insufficient. It seems at first to be a call for the humanities, like human life after this bottleneck might not have cars or air conditioning, but there might be Shakespeare and violins and kindness. 
I love the scene about the tattoo, where Kirsten creates an imaginary memory of the Star Trek episode where the quote originated. She wasn't sure if she actually remembered anything at all of Star Trek. She allowed herself to imagine that she remembered it. A television in a living room, a ship moving through the night silence of space, her brother watching beside her, their parents, if she could only remember their faces, somewhere near. So I pulled up the Star Trek Voyager episode, which brought back memories of how creepy and scary the Borg was back in the day. Seven of Nine is the character who delivers the line, survival is insufficient. But she's not talking about cultural grace notes in deep space. She's talking about freedom of thought. You see, Seven of Nine had been assimilated into the Borg as a child. Just like Kirsten, she would not have remembered her life before. But later, after she was liberated from the Borg, she made a decision to save three of her crewmates by inserting nanoprobes into their left cerebral hemispheres to relink them to the Borg collective. Without that neurolink, they would die. With it, they could survive, but as Borg drones. Seven of Nine decides to free them, which actually means to kill them, from the collective because, as she says, Survival is insufficient. It leads me to ponder the implications of ecofascism and survivalist cults. That type of survival for Kirsten was insufficient. I get it. But what does it mean to be an individual versus a collective when it comes to our planetary predicament? The separation of me from you and you from them and us from nature and all other living beings isn't the great collective of Gaia, what we actually need to be part of, isn't our individuality, our specialness, what got us into this mess? Today I think of bees. They're drones or ants. They're a collective. If humans could be part of the noosphere that, like the Borg mind, actually makes us one, wouldn't that survival be sufficient? Climate collapse as an individual, or survival as member of a planetary Earth collective, hmm, which would you choose? If you have an idea for the art house, or perhaps a book suggestion for Krista, feel free to contact us, radio at citizensclimate.org. That's radio at citizensclimate.org. Hi, I'm Peter Santoscano, and you're listening to Spirit in Action. Coming up, artist Carolyn Roberts shares with us her art installation, The Presence of My Life Looks Different Under Trees. And you will hear an original radio play, Confessions of the Little Match Girl to the Stars. Stay tuned. Great stuff you're bringing to us today, Peterson, for Spirit in Action. Yes, folks, this is Spirit in Action of Northern Spirit Radio, website northernspiritradio.org, where all kinds of links and resources are available to you. Track down Peterson Toscano, Citizens Climate Radio, all their guests, and also all of the guests we've had on Spirit in Action over the past 16 and a half years. 
find the 42-plus community radio stations carrying our shows nationwide. This treasure trove of local-based and energized news and music. Please support them with your hands and wallets because they're a vital bulwark against the mass production and corporate uniformity. If you help them out and still have something to give, you can also support us with a donation at northernspiritradio.org. And please post a comment on our programs when you visit. We'd love to have your thoughts, insights, and suggestions filtering into our ears. In our corporate-driven world, your voice counts with us and with community radio stations, not because you're a source of profit, but because we're a united community. Step into the circle. Right now, back to guest host Peterson Toscano and Citizens Climate Radio. Every month on Citizens Climate Radio, I feature art and artists that stir up conversations about climate change. Beyond the facts and figures, the data sets and the policy proposals, artists bring the skill of moving audiences to feel deeply about a topic that's often too big for our brains to process. Artists can stir up empathy as they reveal what scientists and climate communicators are trying to tell us. Coming up, you will hear a moving performance of Camille Hake's short play, Confessions of the Little Match Girl to the Stars. The playwright weaves together words from a nursery rhyme, a famous climate speech, and the last words of a man murdered by police. It's an intense and important work. But first, we need to take a trip into the forest. Personally, I particularly love being in forests. I love hiking through them. I love sitting under the trees and just listening to the breeze and the bird song. And I love the way the light comes through the forest. Artist Caroline S. Roberts talks about her installation, The Present of My Life Looks Different Under Trees. It is an immersive installation of cyanotypes that has been exhibited at Box 13 Art Space and HCC Southwest in Houston, Texas. And so when I was thinking of trees, I particularly wanted to bring some of that atmosphere into something I made, into an installation. Besides thinking of each of these panels as a tree ring, I'm also thinking of the entire installation as a grove of trees that you can stand in. And because trees live so much longer than us, they're kind of bearing witness. They're bearing witness to the climate change, they're bearing witness to our actions, and they're recording it this entire time in their tree rings. I reached out to Caroline to learn more about her as an artist doing climate-related art. She has to do a lot of explaining about exactly what she does. Because if I say I'm a photographer, people imagine I walk around with a camera and make big, beautiful digital prints of people or places. And that really isn't what I do. I, 
I, I do use photographic processes, but I don't necessarily consider myself a straight photographer because what I do is rarely using the materials in the way in which they were originally intended. And so then I try and explain that I make work about the natural world and about climate change often, and that I make these big installations and 50% of people's eyes glaze over and the other 50% are like, oh, that's really cool. Do you have anything up right now? So that's where the conversation either ends or continues. I always loved science and was reasonably good at math and did find science fascinating and making things too was always in there. And so yes, I chose science A-levels being in the UK and specialized at 15, 16 into just science and math and then became a chemical engineer thinking that the route to solving a lot of environmental problems would be scientists fixing the problem at the input end and rapidly discovered that that was naive. <laughs> Mostly a lot of engineering stuff and a lot of chemical plants and processes are purely governed by economics and shareholders and making money with a minimum expenses. And of course, anything environmental, all of protections are super expensive to install, to design in the first place. And so everyone just skirts along just meeting EPA regulations. Uh, and that was a disappointment to me. And then there were other reasons that long term, this is not what I want to be doing. I love it still. I love science. And I'm glad that I can bring that in in a different way. I did statistics at A-level, have been able to bring that back and use it in the, the installation project, bringing down weather data. And it's, it's not even very complicated statistics. A story about a drowned forest thousands of years ago, along with the recent flooding in her city, inspires and informs the work. So I was thinking about this area off the north coast, well, northeast coast of England called Doggerland, where there must have been forests drowned thousands, hundreds of thousands of years ago. And they'll still catch things in fishing nets and, you know, parts of trees will get washed up that have been under the ocean for hundreds of thousands of years. And I was thinking about this and how there'll be places on the earth that will drown in the same way in the next 40, 50 years. H how do I give someone the feeling of that? And it was over a much longer time frame than we're seeing, but over a couple of generations, this whole area became drowned. And so you can imagine these Neolithic peoples with no scientific knowledge, no warning, just being like, well, our hunting grounds are flooded year after year, and but our grandmothers were able to hunt here and now we can't. What are we going to do? And people moving and the, the violence and the there's a quite a lot of evidence of violence around that era that they think was to do with this people being shoved closer to going closer together, which given the population at the time seems extraordinary, but I guess hunters and gatherers need a great deal larger area in order to get the food they need. I was fascinated by that and I was like, well, that's really going to be a thing going forwards that we're going to lose parts, a lot of our most heavily populated areas in countries along the coasts and these are going to become potentially uninhabitable or at least more and more difficult to inhabit as I think we're starting to see here on the Gulf Coast. So, so I was just thinking then about, well, what about which Texas forests are going to drown? And then for whatever reason, I jump to, well, are we seeing a change here at the coast? What's happening in the weather pattern? And that's when I downloaded the data and was just 
I think I walked around for three or four weeks kind of with my mouth open in horror, just how are people still living with this is happening? <laughs> like how, how can you go about your daily life and not, and not want to scream? Because it was so obvious. I didn't even have to do much beyond a simple graph averaging over time and there it was, obvious. Using this data, Caroline worked with large swaths of fabric and a special photographic process to alter their color and even their weight. The whole thing wraps around you. It's about 60 feet long and the panel's made to be 11 feet tall. So they'll go ceiling to floor in the highest of spaces. And when you enter, you're, you're struck by these sort of lightweight fabrics that are drifting a little bit because most spaces that'll be installed in will have some form of air conditioning or air flow. And so they drift a tiny bit. And then as you look around, you realize there's years on each panel. Each panel says a year because they're recent. You obviously recognize 1959, 2010. And then you realize, well, wait, over here through the 60s and 70s, it's really pale. And as it works around the room, it's getting darker and darker until the the most recent years. 2017 is currently the darkest panel, but I can tell you that 2020 is going to be the same kind of super dark, almost black tone of blue. So you're going from these light, cool blue tones to this heavy, oppressive, dark kind of blue-black color. And in fact, the fabric on that side is physically heavier because it's maintained so much more of the Prussian blue mineral that comes about from the cyanotype process. And so physically, that fabric is actually weighs a little more. I think what I really, really wanted when people entered the space was to just to see jaws drop open. And at one point, I almost had my, my ultimate goal would be if someone just broke down and cried. Nobody actually did, but I came close. People were were just gobsmacked, I think is the nice British term, which is just perfect for this. To create the shades of color in her forest of fabric, Caroline needed 100% cotton that had not been processed. The place I get it from, I know that they haven't sized it or added anything else to it. It's pure cotton. It's what they call prepared for dyeing, so it has no other coatings on it because the process I use is one of the oldest photographic processes called the cyanotype, and it's two water-based chemicals. They're not particularly expensive because they're iron-based instead of silver-based, which also means that what you're washing out is not as harmful to the environment as silver. I can't promise it's zero impact. I wish I could. It's iron-based like rust, and it's a much more common element. It's a lot safer for me to use in large quantities. I don't need any particular protective equipment to use it. Was invented in, I think, 1871 or 72 by Sir John Herschel. It quickly got dropped because it's far too slow of a light reaction for cameras, which is what I was thinking about at the time, was bringing optics and photographic record together. But more recently, it's been picked up. What I enjoy is just how long it takes to make an exposure, especially these ones on fabric. Some of them to get the darkest tones, that's like two days worth of exposure and two coatings with chemicals. I just love that there's the connection between the amount of sunshine and heat that that fabric had to absorb to turn that color and what it represents, which is the warming planet, the warming Gulf Coast. 
She helps visitors to the installation understand both her process and the data through displays and books she created. Even with these, she applies the artist's touch. So the explanation board I made deliberately to look like a technical drawing or a blueprint, because for years the cyanotype process found its only outlet, really, in being architectural blueprint drawings. It's cheap and it's easy to reproduce things like that. So I made mine in a similar way. I got a big transparency sheet and I hand drew everything. One of my favorite subjects back in middle school had been technical drawing in the days when you still did that stuff by hand and still did that stuff at school. So I made this big blueprint explanation board and and I was pleased with how it came out. But then I could use this transparency sheet to make as many or as few copies as I needed. The other part of text in the whole exhibition is a book. So there's one for each year as I first installed it. So it was 1959 to 2018. That was an awful lot of work because they were individually hand printed. But the content of that book are quotes and information from places like the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists. There's a quote from Annie Dillard and then from naturalists who write a lot, such as Stephen Jay Gould. You know, this is 30 plus years ago. He's talking about how planet doesn't really need us, but we need it. There is a point at which we could just eliminate ourselves. We're far more fragile than the earth is. We shouldn't be talking about the earth as being fragile. It will live on after us just in a different form. What's fragile is us. I think his quote is, we can surely eliminate our fragile selves. As an artist, Caroline allowed herself to be moved and influenced by data, history, the natural world, her present-day concerns, and literature. The title of the installation is The Present of My Life Looks Different Under Trees which is actually a misquote of Annie Dillard that I'd misremembered. The actual quote is, the present of our lives looks different on the trees. And the rest of the quote goes on, trees have dominion. If I fell in a forest, would a tree hear? And at that point, she's she's just mute, lying under some trees, as I love to do, and musing about the difference between soft-shelled humans that are so fragile and these long-lived trees that will continue long after she's dead and were alive long before she started walking the earth. And I've always loved that about trees, that their lifespans are so much longer. You know, there's always that thought, well, trees on battlefields that were alive hundreds of years ago, what have they seen? What have they witnessed? There are trees in the UK that were alive back in Henry VIII's time, and there are trees that I think Sally Mann has recorded that were alive on Civil War battlefields that she specifically recorded, thinking about, well, what did they see if they had eyes? I'm fascinated by how much we're learning about how trees do record things for us, like the tree rings that dendroclimatologists use to kind of get a much more historical record but also the way they communicate within forests that we've just recently been finding out. All of that just fascinates me, that there are these life forms that are just happily getting on without us and probably will happily get on without us when we've finished eliminating ourselves.
Like trees and the data they contain, Caroline S. Roberts is bearing witness to the destruction that our pollution has unleashed. She's hoping the installation will move people to action. I encourage you to follow Caroline S. Roberts. So being an artist, I favor Instagram over Twitter because words are not always my favorite way of communicating. My Instagram handle is Caroline S. Roberts. If you come across lots of things that are blue, that's me. And perhaps you want to find out what it would take to bring this installation to a gallery or some other space near where you live. Learn more about The Present of My Life Looks Different Under Trees at the website carolinesroberts.com. That's carolinesroberts.com. Founded in 2015, Climate Change Theatre Action is a worldwide series of readings and performances of short climate plays. They're presented every two years to coincide with the United Nations COP meetings. In episode 63, we feature Chantelle Bilodeau, one of the founders of Climate Change Theatre Action. We also chatted with playwright Zoe Svensson, whose play Love Out of Ruins is featured in this year's cycle of short plays. Today, you will hear a dramatic reading of Camille Haque's play Confessions of the Little Match Girl to the Star. Camille explains that in creating this piece, he chose to fracture a fairy tale, a nursery rhyme, and the calling out of Mama. These common symbols of innocence form the spine of the play. To create the heart, soul of this piece, he examined and extracted from transcripts of Greta Thunberg's 2019 UN Climate Action Summit and George Floyd's final moments in 2020. Through these, he explores how two people on opposite ends of the age and racial spectrum express grief and anguish at their circumstances. He asks, how might their spirit and the spirit of their message live on literally and metaphorically? Confessions of the Little Match Girl to the Star was performed for the BTS Center's 2021 Convocation event. It is read by Dr. Natasha DeJarnett, a public health expert and the chair of Citizens Climate Education Board. Twinkle, twinkle, little star, how I wonder what I'm doing here. I shouldn't be here. It's 8.46 p.m. Just two matches left, and it's too late to get shelter. Stars, light your fires. Make me forget the cold lies I was told. The cold eyes that looked anywhere but at me. Make me forget the cold, icy grip that tightens. Mama. 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 Ma. 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 Are you up there in the stars? I remember those fairy tales you used to read me. 
always ending with happy ever after. But things turned out so different. I was meant to be in school, grow big and strong and tall so I could look after you one day. I was meant to be anywhere but burying my dreams for a better life with you. It's hard to shine when your spirit lives outside your body six feet underground. My dreams and childhood stolen. I tell myself happy ever after is if you still feel your heartbeat, it's all wrong. All I see is a world already burning, a world of people suffering, people dying, entire ecosystems collapsing, a world where the only fairy tale is the gospel according to money. When I go, who will even notice but the stars? Look, the clock is inching closer to doomsday. I don't want to believe the world is evil. I don't want to be angry. I don't want to fight anymore. I'm so tired. My body aches. I feel drained. My arms hurt. I've grasped at straws for too long. My fingers, each has a separate sensation. Why can't I feel my Mama, mama, ma, 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 ma. Why did I waste all that time begging people to listen? I'll probably just die this way. I'm through. My stomach hurts. My neck hurts. Everything hurts. I feel so betrayed. This was meant to be my time to shine. Instead, I'm cowering in the darkness. Meek is the earth that I have inherited. Without any money to my name, age in my face, agency in my spirit, I'm just another number. Tomorrow, if the world wakes up, maybe change will come, whether people like it or not. One last attempt to be seen. Stars, shine your light for the travelers in the dark night of the soul. The ones after me. Oh my God. I can't believe this. I believe this. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. Twinkle, twinkle, little star, how I wonder what. Mama, ma, ma, ma.
If you have an idea for the art house, feel free to contact me, radio at citizensclimate.org. Thank you for joining me today on Spirit in Action. You heard excerpts from Citizens Climate Radio, a podcast which is a project of Citizens Climate Education, and you can hear our show wherever you get podcasts. Here at Citizens Climate Education, we have a solution that will greatly reduce pollution. We believe that putting a price on carbon will make a huge difference. We want to tell you more about it. Visit cclusa.org slash price on carbon. If you have comments or idea for the show, feel free to send an email, radio at citizensclimate.org. That's radio at citizensclimate.org. Now, back to Mark Helpsmeet. Thanks so much, Peterson, for freeing me up this week and for enriching the minds, hearts, and spirits of our Spirit in Action listeners. Remember, folks, that links to all things Peterson Toscano are on northernspiritradio.org, and there's a lot there because he does other podcasts also, like Bubble and Squeak, and he was a founder of the Bible Bash podcast, plus he's done some awesome theatrical productions. So, Follow our links on northernspiritradio.org, and we'll see you all next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice, with every song, we will move this world along, and our lives will feel the echo.